welcome back to another Reflections episode on the Eyes Wide Open Live podcast. I'm the host, Rockler Jarman. These are shorter episodes um, in a series called Reflections and Contemplations. In this series, we will cover pieces of my own work or pieces I've come across that I find deeply inspiring and have enriched my thinking and my life in some profound way. These reflections are intended to fill the cultural space that homilies and philosophical or spiritual contemplations used to. The thought to put in mind is, what do you wish to say to the world which might set wings to the fallen angels of our abandoned but once noble ideas? It is true we cannot change people, but we can speak with conviction and passion and set lights in the sky of their mind so that the moths or their own inner wisdom might be drawn to them or not. The thing is, not everyone is ill with a sense of disconnection, and there are more people that want good things with no cost to other living beings. But how do you speak about this when speaking loudly has become just another form of illness? So these reflections are invitations for us to find stillness, to reflect, to find a way gracefully of speaking about um, the issues that we confront, our emotions, our psychological challenges in relationships and in society, um, in a way that isn't more noise that we're finding on all of our digital channels already. This week's Reflections episode is titled Justice and Injustice. There is a lot happening in the world at the moment and recently in the news. Um, the Derek Chauvin trial and conviction around the uh, murder of George Floyd has attracted a lot of attention and got what the, the sort of most people would agree is a reasonable and fair outcome. Um, to be expected, <clears throat> the concern obviously is that the media is fetishizing the trope of corrupt and out of control and racist police in North America. And they're showing a skewed picture of overreactions and miscarriages of, of law and order and miscarriages of justice, which only incite outrage, violence, and alarm in one direction. It's not to say the public shouldn't be made aware of situations like this or that we shouldn't be um, intolerant of injustice, um, abuses of office, abuses of power by law enforcement and by other government agencies that are supposed to serve the people. Of course, that's not the case. But... Their interest of the media is not to portray an accurate picture of what's happening. It's to drive clicks and drive outrage and make money. And furthermore, um, the Twitter war that ensues between the left and the right, very little common sense or critical thinking is applied on either side. And outcries, for example, like defunding police 
is actually so poorly reasoned and so poorly thought through. Um, but the reason we can't really land on a safe middle ground or um, is A, because we're not really allowed to talk about it. And the reason we're not really allowed to talk about any of this is because the heightened emotion around what is perceived as a sense of just huge and unacceptable injustice. Now, the reflection today is on justice and injustice. And reflections, again, are my attempt to bring ideas and thoughts for us to sit in quiet reflection with. Um, these are supposed to take the place of what used to be sermons or homilies or philosophical contemplation so that we can become still and learn more about ourselves and learn more about um, our relationship with the world around us. If we find ourselves triggered, in other words, moved to a level of emotion where we can't really engage with the material, this is precisely the purpose of what reflections are intended to address. So <clears throat> we don't only want to tackle comfortable, interesting, romantic ideas like we've done in the past. Um, I also want to tackle difficult ones so we can look at what it is about us as individuals and as species and how we got here and how we're wired and programmed to expect fairness from the world, what our relationship is with justice, why a sense of injustice happening galvanizes us and outrages us so much. In some ways, as it should, but then also the question we probably want to ask ourselves about how do we be most effective, how do we contribute most meaningfully to what we're perceiving as injustice or uh, an imbalance of opportunity or rights and whether outrage and just raw empathy is actually adding value to the piece or not. So there's a few um, pieces I've written. These are all my pieces which we'll be covering um, around justice, injustice, fairness, and <clears throat> I'm going to be going through all of them and we're going to reflect together on them as we go. So in opening, um, I think in any issue that galvanizes people one way or the other, truth does exist. But it's not easy to get at because of all the noise, because of our human weaknesses. Now, those human weaknesses are our cognitive biases, our limited bandwidth, and the bandwidth that we do have is completely monopolized by a relentless fire hose of information and misinformation and distraction. There's a thing called Dunning and Kruger effect, which means we think we learn a little bit about a subject and we believe, due to ignorance of not knowing what we don't know, that we now understand more about a topic or a subject than what we actually do. And we never question the limit of our understanding. We typically don't question. And that's the default human behavior. So aside from the relentless fires of information, misinformation, and distraction, there's the Dunning-Kruger effect. There's the psychological phenomenon of framing and priming. In other words, how a headline could set us up for how we receive a certain piece of information. The language that's used is deliberately evocative 
Also, the last thing we watched primed us and set us up for a certain level of engagement with what we're about to, um, to read or process. And all of these things are well-known facts about the poverty of human reasoning. Now, our ability to become triggered and our propensity for conflating issues, our ability to mishear and misremember, and more importantly, the growing mistrust of government, the growing mistrust of experts and journalism, which, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't arrive at and haven't arrived at dishonestly. These are all warning signs which we should factor in during times like these, and yet we pretend they don't exist, like a child who imagines they become invisible when they close their eyes. So uh, this reflections is not intended to tell people what to think. I just want to encourage people to consider how to think. And I don't claim that my insights are the only way. I'm just contending that there are worse and better ways to navigate problems and troubling times. And I am actively looking for better ways. The first piece is about our sense of expectation and disappointment at a very deep level that is tied to our ideas of justice. It's an untitled piece and it goes like this. Justice is blind because she can look into a past only barely enlightened by the embers of understanding from a half-remembered time which still glow between the ashes of primitive hearths and once strident beacons. And she can look only upon a full unfolding present by the torchlight of the mob which cast long lancing shadows of pitchforks upon her scroll of deeds that cast her veiled eyes that cast her veiled eyes into a future not at all, for it is dark and none yet dwell there. And the point of this piece is we sit in the present moment and we get situations like what happened recently where um, sometime after the or during the um, the the high tide of the hashtag MeToo movement, a social justice movement, which was calling out uh, men who had abused their positions of power and marginalized women, unactualized women, or had compromised their ability to actualize and had forced them to live in shame and silence for fear that they wouldn't be believed or understood. Now, that's a that's a horrific situation to be in. And if you are a brother, a father of daughters, a husband to a wife that you cherish, a son to a mother that you cherish, you will begin to understand <clears throat> that an affront to them is an affront to you because you feel it's your job to protect them or create a world that values them as much as you do. And to realize that their value is perhaps compromised is, and, and more than just compromise, that there's insult or injury or devaluing that goes with that um, is something that stirs in us and makes us upset and uncomfortable and drives us to emotion and, and, and sometimes outrage and action. And at the height of the hashtag MeToo movement, somebody called out, I think, something that John Wayne 
the actor would have said or done earlier. And he was vilified all over social media because of um, the, the, the facts about his choices and quotes and behavior and sayings were brought into the light of scrutiny of the present moment with absolutely no understanding of the context of a past that he would have lived in. It's borderline ridiculous to take behavior from the past, what would have been acceptable um, as humor, the way the world's sentiment and moral philosophy, collective moral philosophy evolves over time. If, if we, to, to, to take an action from the past and bring it into the present moment and judge it from the standards of the present moment and think that we're winning some sort of um, moral victory. If, if we are watching the march of, of human development um, and can not see that overall there's some measure of progress which we want to acknowledge and, and emulate and keep leaning towards, then we are failing to um, we're failing to take the world a as it is and invite change and progress, and therefore we're not allowing or admitting of the opportunity or prospect of progress. And by definition, that progress is going to mean ten years from now the things that I say or that you say or that what we find socially acceptable will no longer be socially acceptable. That's the whole definition of progress. So the first stanza of this thing, justice is blind because she can look into a past only barely enlightened by the embers of understanding from a half-remembered time which still glow between the ashes of primitive hearths and once strident beacons. So the strident beacons are these, these grandiose idealistic principles which we'd like to believe like um, ideas like the nobility of the samurai or the chivalry of knights in old England or what romance used to look like in the 50s. But our idea of romance in the 50s, for example, was something that was um, sold to us based on what we picked up from what made it to vinyl records and um, romanticized moments in movies. And, of course, those are unrealistic portrayals of what the world and what relationships actually look like. The next part is about why justice is blind, also because she can look only upon a full unfolding present by the torchlight of the mob, which cast long-lancing shadows of pitchforks upon her scroll of deeds. Our ability as a society to moderate or reflect collectively and adjust our thinking or challenge bad thinking, etc., can only be done when things are brought to light. Now, in a utopian society, we would bring ideas to light and we would allow people to speak honestly about their insights or views on the world. Um, and then we would get a clear cut of their intentions, their morality, their reasoning, and how they're wired, and then we'd be able to argue those things on its merits and maybe through peer pressure and the um, evolutionary pressures of, um, of, of acceptance into a group, we'd be able to moderate for ideas that we don't want to have or ideas we want to get rid of. But at the moment, 
the only time issues get brought up for us to pay attention to is when they're mixed with outrage deliberately by social media and media companies for us to suddenly become galvanized around and look at and be polarized about even better. And by the time it lands on Twitter or Facebook or um, your latest you know, media outlet of choice or the headlines of a newspaper, it's never told with full um, sort of exculpatory context. It's always... It's 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 always got the 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 tone about it of um, of lynch mob or of um, uh, sort of kangaroo court. And the last part, but cast her veiled eyes into a future not at all, for it is dark and none yet dwell there. If we haven't figured out by now that our sense of justice and fairness and morality is something that is evolving and becoming refined over time as we understand more and more and more the folly of our original and primitive ideas and how even our thoughts now of what we're all sitting, standing shoulder to shoulder on and believing is absolutely correct, um, we're sort of overlooking the fact that we have undergone as a species just the most profound um, transformations where we agree slavery is wrong and women, of course, should have the vote and you shouldn't be advertising cigarettes to children. And there's things we're learning slowly and growing up about. Now, somebody who spends their time focused on moral philosophy has to ask some difficult questions and it's so... Um, naive and simplistic for us to just close the door on that or make assertions as if we know exactly how we're all going to collectively think 10 or 50 years from now. The piece I'm about to read is potentially controversial. It's th th There's two kinds of, um, or there's two scenarios. The one, The one is where whoever is the subject of a public trial or, a, a you know, the court of public inquiry that sort of happens on Twitter because people's careers can be ended based on public sentiment and the person who holds their, their contract or their role is pressurized by the mob effectively on Facebook or on Twitter, usually Twitter, and that person loses their job, either a university or as a journalist or as a politician or whatever the case. The other scenarios are if there is somebody who is um, patently responsible, based on all accounts, for um, a heinous crime, either like a serial killer or like this policeman that directly or indirectly caused the death of George Floyd, th then to hear what I'm about to read sounds potentially controversial. And it's not to say that we don't want that person to be held responsible, completely responsible for their actions, or that we don't want in that instance... Um, the repercussions that they suffered to serve as a warning for the rest of the tribe, the rest of the of society, that this behavior generally isn't tolerated. It's literally the um, the mechanism by which we all moderate our moral norms. So here goes. I would hear the very last word of a condemned man and still sue for clemency. Not that he be spared judgment in the moment by a mob baying for the conviction of a sentence, but that we all might be spared. 
the final judgment by the silent gazes of the eyes yet to open to a world who will look back and cover their mouths in shame. Now, with somebody like Derek Chauvin, who was responsible for the murder of George Floyd and the conviction that got announced recently, this sounds extremely controversial. <clears throat> I would hear the very last word of a condemned man and still sue for clemency. So I would hear the last thing that he has to say and I would give him voice to speak and I would still ask that we treat people like that with pity. Not that they get spare judgment, but that we as a species collectively can be spared the final judgment because whatever we do now gets written forever in history and will be looked upon by the silent gazes of eyes who are yet to open to the world, a generation that's yet to come who hopefully have evolved past our primitive lack of compassion and, and limited scope of thinking and understanding and who will look upon our actions and deeds and cover their mouths in shame to think that humans are capable of such um, barbarism. Now, it's, it's easy for us to look back at <clears throat> the, the SS in the Second World War or um, what the Khmer Rouge did to their own countrymen after <clears throat> in Cambodia. Um, or any human travesty or tragedy that's unfolding at the moment somewhere far away, it's easy to look in on them and go, oh, my God, how inhumane. And, of course, there is, this is something that my heart would wish people would fix and moderate and, um, and improve on in terms of, of compassion and valuing of other and developing into a more loving and open and mindful and compassionate society. But if we don't want to make space for providing someone to give their reasons or explain their case or sue for clemency when judgment is upon them for someone that we support or for someone that we don't support, then it means we don't really understand clemency and we don't really understand justice. And this happens a lot with free speech. People want free speech for when someone that they agree with is not being permitted to speak. But when someone that they don't agree with is not being permitted to speak, then they don't agree with free speech. And that's not the point of free speech. And similarly, that's not the point of clemency. Our humanity is not defined by our preparedness to wave a rod of sentencing in defense of the weak. And this is always what we think we're doing when we're getting on the right side of a social justice issue. Your humanity is not defined by your preparedness to wave the rod of sentencing in defense of the weak, but your preparedness to be strong in the face of such weakness, to truly notice, truly, that it is a baton of who is perpetrator and who is victim that is passed on and on and on in a kind of macabre relay race, which is this giant social experiment we're all participating in um, unawares um, in the 21st century. To get to why this is so galling is there was a piece I wrote when I was confronting you know, a sense of injustice that had been visited to me. And I had to eventually come to the realization that I 
was holding on some level a naive view of the world that the world ought to be fair. Somewhere, something inside of me is this need or, or expectation that the world ought to be fair. And this piece is called The Opposite of Fairness. <clears throat> the opposite of fairness is not unfairness. It is indifference. Indifference from an indifferent universe. For if your life was just unjust, at least you'd covet the rarest pleasure of all, which is being the most righteous of victims. The indifference, though, which strikes both strings of the paradox, with both the extra string of calculated spite with which fate disinherits you of hope, as your calls go unanswered, and, and the impotence of your prayers for meaning, which echo back with no obligation for that answer to be heard. The, the, the blow of the sense of indifference from a world that there is no ultimate arbiter of what is right or wrong and there is never, daddy is not coming, there is no revelation or God or final judgment isn't going to happen. Some fucking assholes are just going to get away with harming children or, um, you know, disenfranchising you of some opportunity or... Um, murdering your name publicly, character assassination, or, or, or taking something from you that you can never get back. When everyone in the world is aware that what you have just suffered is injustice, we get a kind of relief or a kind of satisfaction or a kind of pleasure. Now, those are not exact words but something to give us a sense that our wound is known and acknowledged by everybody and we have every reason to cradle ourselves in that injury. But the prospect of indifference, this is the one that utterly fucks us up because in this reaching out to the world to hear your pleas and to be recognized or witnessed for how terribly unjust or what a victim of injustice you are, there's nothing that sees you and there's nothing that cares and there's nothing that's going to keep score. It, it is the, the sting of indifference. And what indifference does is it takes away your hope of closure and your hope of redress, and your hope of fairness. And there's this sort of like hollow realization that all your prayers for meaning, if they echo back at all in any way, they echo, it's, it's as if you're shouting and you're the only one left alive in the world and you're in a, a gorge or, or a canyon and your voice echoes back, but what echoes back has no obligation to be heard or understood, which means it's not a live, intelligent, caring, connecting thing. It's just physics. And that can feel so hollow and lonely. The opposite of fairness is not unfairness. It is indifference. Indifference from an indifferent universe. For if your life was just unjust, you at least could covet the rarest pleasure of all, which is being the most righteous of victims. The indifference strikes both strings of the paradox, with both the extra sting of the calculated spite with which fate disinherits you of your hope as your calls go unanswered, and, 
the impotence of your prayers for meaning, which echo back with no obligation for the answers to be heard. I believe at its heart, justice is a spirit of balance that we seek subconsciously and have always sought subconsciously. It is built into our social psychology as a species. It's built into our sense of fairness and expectation of the world as we grow up as children turning to our parents to um, be the arbiters of what's fair. <clears throat> we judge or trust our parents based on the fairness of their of the punishment that you know sometimes we feel we deserve what we got and sometimes we feel the punishment was too much. We have a relationship with our teachers <clears throat> as we're growing up through school. <clears throat> Any position of authority, kings and um, nobility in the Middle Ages, um, management in businesses we work for, we always have an expectation that with power comes the responsibility to ensure that my needs are taken care of. People need power, freedom, purpose, and safety. And we want to be free to pursue our purpose. We want to not have people compromise our power or limit our power. <clears throat> we want the whoever is in charge of looking after the role of authority to ensure our safety. And we want them to be responsible for protecting our freedoms and not limiting our freedoms. And justice is what we appeal to, to authority, when one of those four things have been compromised in some way, we've not been given our needs or not been allowed to express ourselves through those needs. And injustice <clears throat> is when our requests for redress and our requests for having something seen to or fixed or repaired to us is dealt with in a way that's dismissive of our needs and treats us less, less worthy, less valuable, less cherished part of the group and the whole. And the sense of justice and injustice is very much tied to our sense of belonging and our sense of value to the group that we belong to and to who um, amongst us in that group <clears throat> is held accountable for when they step out of line and take away one of those precious things from us. Injustice, then, is the, the pain we sit with when we have been let down by positions of authority or voices of authority and personal persons that have been responsible for taking from us which cannot be given back are not held accountable and not made to repair to us the things that were taken away or compensate us in some way for the things that were taken away. And 
we don't really understand that because we're attributing injury and therefore culpability against people or to people that haven't necessarily injured us because we as a species have become less resilient whereas individuals have become less resilient <clears throat> and therefore our sense of injustice is something which has been um, stimulated but it can never get resolved and one of the reasons it can never get resolved is we can't get consensus on what an injury looks like or who is and who isn't an actual victim of a situation and the reason that there's this malaise of perceived injustice in the world is because we can't get consensus on what an injury actually looks like and what constitutes an injury these days and therefore who is a perpetrator and who is a victim so in closing to wrap up this little reflection on justice and injustice and to put a little lid on this part of what justice means to us what we mean when we say the word justice or we invoke the, the the concept in our in our in our minds and what we mean when we feel injustice <clears throat> i want to talk about um redemption because in our exploration of self or other we have looked at justice and injustice always through the lens of us being the one that something wrong was done to and when we saw justice, it got put right. And when we suffered injustice, it's when it didn't get put right. For us to understand justice and injustice, we need to understand our model of authority and what we attribute to authority. Authority for us isn't just power to control and give us freedom and provide us safety. It's also power to um, ensure that the others in the group are all being held to the same standards as we are. And we're social mammals, and much of what we think of as spirituality or religion or morality, etc., is a set of expectations and beliefs we hold at a foundational psychological level <clears throat> about what's right and what's fair and how the how we earn and and preserve our place in the group. Um, and what we expect the power structure or the dominance structure in the group to in, in, ensure. So when people wrong us, we ensure who is ever holding power in the group um, will be the ones to make sure that you get redressed or you get repaired back to what was taken away or you get compensated in some way for the things that were taken away. But in our look at this, we're going to flip it around a bit and we're going to look at us as the ones who are suffering the correct execution of justice. In other words, we were the ones that did something wrong. We were the ones that, that failed our better nature in some way or fell foul of the expectations of the group and have now in some way 
<clears throat> had our place in the group um, impacted or compromised. <clears throat> Psychologically, one of the most profound uh, punishments or, or experiences we can endure, anyone can endure, is to lose our sense of belonging. Ultimately, we all want connection, and what we want in that connection is the indelible belief, an indelible sense that we belong. And morality really is our map for if we do this, then there should be no reason why we don't also belong. And shame and guilt are the two things which keep us from belonging. And the one says, I did something wrong, which is guilt, and shame says, I am something wrong. So when we have done something wrong and we actually have made a mistake and we have fallen foul of the group's expectations or we've fallen out of grace with someone, the problem we have in the world today right now is we do not have shared rituals, shared understanding, a shared map, a shared narrative for what it looks like to earn that grace back and to earn redemption. Our falls from grace are as inevitable as our rising to new heights, as inevitable as the turning of the seasons. If we cannot hold and share a common map, a sure path between fall and redemption, a way for those who fall to low places in our society, through misstep or lapse of judgment, to re-inherit some aspect of their lost standing, or to rekindle in our eyes the light of acceptance, for those that undertake the journey, we shall sooner or later tear ourselves apart as we each clamor atop each other in our desperation to be the highest among the fallen. If we don't find a way and stand up for that way and help develop and enshrine a way for someone who has fallen from grace to find their way back, and follow an arc of redemption. Sooner or later, our turn comes, and we are the ones that are suffering, paradoxically, a different kind of injustice, right in the heart of the execution of justice. So what we do at the moment, somebody falls from grace, and we effectively banish them from the group. People can lose their jobs because of public sentiment and public outcry. We can vilify them. They can... They can be cast out, and we call that banishment, excommunication from the group. And it's the harshest psychological sentence for a social um, mammal. And if we don't find a way socially as a society to develop a map and share this map of how somebody might step their way back into our graces and how they could like rekindle that light of acceptance in our hearts and our eyes, we will eventually all end up on a pile of the guilty now vying amongst all the fallen, how we clamor on top of each other so we can be the least low down on the pile. And that is literally the definition of unprocessed shame. And our society, unfortunately, is driven on shame and much of the social justice movements 
and the vehemence behind those social social justice movements and the the frothy rabid way in which we pursue social justice is exactly that way because we cannot sit with the discomfort of our own shame and we are clamoring on top of other people and virtue signaling because we don't want to be the lowest of the fallen. I hope you enjoyed that uh, Reflections episode on justice and injustice and redemption. If you're enjoying these episodes and are enjoying the content, I would really appreciate a review on your podcast app of choice. It's measurably helpful for me in getting this podcast visible to new listeners. Um, If you've got any questions or queries and you want to submit anything for an Ask Me Anything episode or you'd like to submit a piece to be covered and read in a Reflections episode, please email info at eyeswideopenlife.org. And I look forward to having you back next episode.